Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I invite you to turn back to that passage if you've left it uh, that Mike read for us. As he said, we're going to look at chapter 2, the first five verses, but I do appreciate the context of what he read for us this morning because we've been focusing in on the cross and the foolishness of the cross. And we've been singing of the foolishness of the cross. And this morning we're going to look at Paul's very personal application of the foolishness of the cross and the power that is found there. So it's good for us to, to hone in on that this morning, even as we look at the full context of it. Let me ask again God's blessing on the ministry of his word this morning. Lord, we come to you affirming that your word is truth and affirming that to the world it is foolishness, it is folly, it is weakness. But God, we are grateful that the foolishness of the cross, the the folly of the gospel is the very thing that you have used to draw us savingly into your kingdom. And it is that truth communicated by your spirit through your word that you continually use to draw us back to yourself. And so, God, we pray that you would transform us today through your word. That even as we read about a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that you would do that work among us, that we just wouldn't be reading about these things, that I just wouldn't be speaking about these things, but that you would actually be doing that life-transforming work among us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The two letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians in our Bible, really give us a unique insight into the Apostle Paul himself, really like no other uh, book or no other of his letters in the Bible. And there's several reasons for that. For one, Paul spent a lot of time in the city of Corinth. He, he brought the gospel to that place after he had been in Athens, and a, and a church grew up there, and, and he spent a year and a half grounding the believers there in the Word and calling more people to faith in Jesus Christ. So he, he had an intimate connection, a personal relationship with the believers at Corinth. And then a couple of years later, after he had moved on, he was in the town of Ephesus, and he, he got some word back about some serious situations. And he had already written a letter to the Corinthian church about a very serious sin issue with one of the members of the church that needed to be dealt with. And now he had heard that there were some more issues going on. And so he wrote another letter. That's 1 Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians, we read about another letter that Paul wrote, a, a painful letter. And then we have the book of 2 Corinthians itself. And so we know of four letters, two that are in our Bible, that Paul wrote to this church. And we read in Acts chapter 18 about his ministry there. And so in terms of Paul's ministry, uh, as he went through the Roman world, preaching the gospel, planting churches, we probably know more about his relationship with the Corinthian church than any others. And so we get glimpses into Paul's life as we read this book and as we study it together. And, and we also get it because Paul is 
pretty charged up about a number of things that are going on in the Corinthian church. And so he shares very personally. And in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, we get this unique insight into the interior of Paul, what he was thinking and what he was feeling as he ministered in Corinth, how he, how he was processing what was going on and how he, was strateg- how he had come there to strategize a gospel ministry. These verses that we're going to look at this morning are sort of a psychological journey into the mind of Paul to see what he was thinking and what he was feeling. And uh, perhaps unlike, we're not going to all be a bunch of pop psychologists and try to decipher Paul. If you want to do that, there's lots for you to read out there, by the way. But what we're going to do is let Paul's words speak for themselves. We're going to understand what Paul was thinking and what Paul was feeling as in this passage, he reflects back to the situation that was recorded in Acts chapter 18 when he first came to the city of Corinth and preached the gospel there. And we're going to get a window into Paul, but that window is going to be helpful for us because through it, he is going to give us a crucial principle for ministry. A crucial principle for how we disciple one another. And so I want to bring you back again to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read them one more time. You've already gotten the context. Notice that Paul is writing about something that happened probably four or five years earlier. We read about it in Acts chapter 18 when he first came to the town, the city of Corinth. And I... When I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's really like one thing, the spirit power. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Let's take a look at these verses and, and, and really retrace the story of Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth through, through three things that he talks about here. First, his mindset when he came to Corinth then the actual ministry that he had among the Corinthian people, and then finally his mission while he was there. He's reflecting back on there. Notice that Paul's mindset, what he had come there to do, first of all, he had come there to preach the gospel. There's no doubt about that. He said that he came proclaiming the testimony of God. It's similar to what he said in chapter 1, verse 6, when he talks about the testimony of God, that, that even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you Corinthians, Paul came there proclaiming the testimony of God. But note how he did that. He, he did that focusing completely on Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Now, that word decided there may be a little bit confusing. Uh, another translation of the Bible that you might be looking at might say, I resolved or I determined. And that might be a little bit more helpful because Paul wasn't saying, you know, when I got to Corinth, I decided to do something new or I decided to do something I hadn't ever done before. His, Paul's point here is that when he got to Corinth, he had already resolved. This was the way that he did ministry. This was his M.O., 
to focus completely on Christ and him crucified. I knew, he said, I, know, I knew nothing. I knew nothing except Christ and him crucified. Now, that may bear a little bit of explanation as well, to say I knew nothing but Christ. Here's what that doesn't mean. It's, it's illustrated by a friend of mine and a teammate of mine in ninth grade. You see, in ninth grade, our football team wasn't doing so good, the ninth grade football team. And so the day before the game, our coach gave us this big pep talk. Guys, we have a big game tomorrow. And I don't want you to think about anything but football for the next 24 hours. You are to know nothing but football. Eat, drink, and sleep football. If somebody asks you what time it is, you say football. If your mom asks you what you want for lunch, you say football. Well, as things went, we were sitting in English class the next day. And Miss H asked my friend a question. I don't know, conjugating some verb or something. And he answered. You know how he answered. He said, football. And she said, excuse me, young man? And again, he said, football. Well, you can imagine that things did not go very well for my friend that day, nor for our coach who got an earful from Miss H uh, later on. Now, when Paul says, you are to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, it's not just saying Jesus, or it's not just somehow overlaying Jesus onto everything we say or everything we do. No, Paul is saying what he did was he made his central concern Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ as a wonderful teacher, not just Jesus Christ as a historical figure, but Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ, the Savior who came into the world. Jesus Christ, the one who lived the sinless life that none of us ever did. Jesus Christ, the one who was wrongfully nailed to a cross and died. Jesus Christ, who bore the sin of the world in his body on the cross. Jesus Christ, who rose again to offer salvation to all who look to him in faith. That's who Paul focused on. That is the, what he focused on. It's like the roads in the Roman Empire at Paul's time. They said that all roads lead to Rome. If you got on a road, eventually you could get to Rome. For Paul, all roads led to Jesus, the Savior, him crucified. That was Paul's mindset, a single-minded focus on Jesus Christ. Verses 3 and 4 show us Paul's actual ministry among the Corinthians and what that looked like when he got there. He says, I was with you. Notice he was with them. It was, it was a closely connected relationship. He was with them for a year and a half as a church planter, as a pastor. But notice how he was with them, the nature of that ministry. He was with them in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Take a look, if you would. Turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 tells this story. Acts chapter 18, verse 1, we notice that Paul had come to Corinth after he had been in Athens. And no doubt Paul had been really excited to be in Athens, one of the cultural centers of the then known world, formerly the, the capital of the Greek Empire, but still an important city in the Roman Empire, the, the, the center of culture and of learning, the philosophers who were there. And Paul probably wasn't feeling real great about how things had gone there. 
I mean, Paul had lots of challenges in his ministry, but it seemed that not very many people had come to faith. You can read about that at the end of chapter 17. And then Paul made his way to Corinth. And there he connected with some folks who had several things in common with him. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, they were Jewish. They had been kicked out of Rome by Claudius. That actually happened in uh, AD 49. You can read about that. So we have a pretty good dating of when Paul was in Corinth. They were Jews like Paul. They were tent makers like Paul. And so Paul stayed with them and joined them in their work. And very likely they had already uh, come to know Jesus and were believers or, or had some understanding of what the believers then called the way. Eventually, verse 5, Silas and Timothy joined Paul. And they begin, as Paul did, he had a strategy. He began in the synagogue, speaking the word of God, demonstrating that Jesus truly was Messiah. He truly was the Christ. And notice that there was opposition. Eventually, they're kicked out of the synagogue. But as things worked out, they end up next door at the house of a fearer of God, a God worshiper named Titius Justice, right next door to the synagogue. And then in verse 8, we read about someone we've already seen in 1 Corinthians, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, came to believe. And so Paul is seeing both opposition and he's seeing the gospel make inroads. But then notice, notice verse 9. It says, the Lord, and whenever you're in the book of Acts, you guys were studying Acts and you see it says the Lord, you know that Luke is talking about the Lord Jesus the Lord Jesus said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Now, why would Jesus have to say to Paul, don't be afraid? Clearly, he was afraid. He was fearful. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. And do not be silent. Why would Jesus have to say to Paul, don't be silent. Go on speaking. Well, clearly, Paul was, was fearful, he was trembling, and he was hesitant to speak. Maybe he was wondering, what am I doing here? Why am I in Corinth? Corinth is this bustling, cosmopolitan, competitive city on the rise. It's trending, and they love speakers who come in and can impress people with their oratory and their use of words. And that wasn't Paul. And no doubt, Paul was thinking... I, how am I going to establish a church here and lead people to Christ when what people value in Corinth is, is great oratory, wonderful public speaking, and I'm a knobby-kneed guy who speaks the word very plainly. But Jesus came to him and said, Paul, keep on speaking. Don't be afraid. Here are the key words, verse 10. I am with you. No one will attack you. Well, They'll attack you, but you will not be harmed. For I have many in this city who are my people. Notice, notice the, the eternal work of God. That God could say that there are people that are already his. In time and space, they haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ. But in eternity past, God has, has loved them. And he has decided to make them Jesus, by his, make them Jesus' people by his grace. And so that's the context of Paul's ministry going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so we understand why Paul would say here in, in, 2, in 1 Corinthians that he was with the Corinthians in weakness and in fear. That was what Paul's ministry looked like. 
In verses, chapter 1, verses 18 through 31 that Mike read earlier, Paul has established this principle of the power of the cross, which was manifested through the message or the proclamation of the cross. It's the power of the cross in its weakness and its foolishness, by which God demonstrates his superior strength and wisdom. And now here in chapter 2, Paul gives us an example of this very principle in his own life. His ministry to the Corinthians, the very ministry of the gospel that God used to call them to saving faith, was conducted in weakness and in foolishness. And so we see that Paul's ministry was a ministry of serving out of weakness, and that message that he gave was the message of the gospel that he gave in such a way that it would highlight the power of God and not the achievements of any human being. Well, thirdly, we see Paul's mission. Paul's mission. What was Paul's goal? Verse 5. Why did Paul conduct his ministry this way? In fear, with much trembling, knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so that your faith would rest not on the wisdom, in quotes, of human beings, but in the power of God. Paul's mission, the end game for him, was genuine faith in the people to whom he ministered the gospel. His end game was to see life transformation. Not someone being impressed with him for a little while, not someone liking his ministry program until a new one came along, but lasting faith, true life transformation. You see, Paul was a powerful preacher in Corinth and wherever he went. But it wasn't for the reasons that the Corinthians typically thought that speakers were powerful. They wanted someone who could spin the words. They wanted someone who could wow them. The impact of what they said was great. didn't matter if there was a lot of content behind that. What made Paul's preaching, his particular ministry, so powerful was its dependence on the Spirit's power to apply the Word of God to human hearts rather than on his eloquence, rather than on his strategy or effort. And friends, this morning from Paul's example, we see that life-transforming ministry, ministry that truly transforms lives, relies explicitly on the Spirit's powerful application of the Word of God rather than on any human factor. That's what God is teaching us this morning. That life-transforming ministry relies on the explicit power of the Spirit applying God's Word and not on any human performance or achievement. And so for us... As God's people gathered in the local church, in order for our ministry to have a life-transforming effect, we must rely on the impact of the Spirit rather than on the ingenuity of man. Now, a little definition of what I'm talking about here when when I say ministry. By ministry, I'm simply saying the ways that we serve others in Christ's kingdom. The word minister simply means servant. It's why some countries, typically with sort of a British background, might call someone in government the, the minister of defense. It just means he's a, or she is a public servant. 
minister. A minister is a servant. And so we're all ministers within the church, aren't we? We're here to serve one another. We're here to serve those out there who don't know Christ. And ministry is, is discipling one another. We're called to follow Jesus. It's the simplest call of the gospel. Follow me. And then through the Great Commission, we're called to make disciples, other followers of King Jesus. And so when we talk about ministry or discipling, we're talking about all the ways that we serve one another in the local body, whether it's an official ministry or, or something that we more organically or nat naturally do. And it's all the ways we serve one another in our own homes. And it's all the way we, we serve our neighbors, those in our spheres of influence, whether it's uh, in our school or at our workplace or in our neighborhood, inviting them to discipleship. And so in order for those ministries to have a life-transforming effect, we need to rely on the impact of the Spirit rather than anything we bring to the table. And so I'd like to, to explore that a little bit further because I think it begs the question, how? <laughs> how does that work? How can we rely on the Spirit to have impact? Because that's what we want. We want to see life transformation in those we are serving. And so how do we do that? How do we rely? And I chose that word rely purposefully because I, I, I want it to convey trust. I want it to convey faith. That what I'm talking about doing here is an act of faith. It's active faith in our lives as Jesus' followers. And so how can we rely on the impact of the Spirit? And it's sort of back-to-school season, right? Sorry about that, kids. So we're going to go with three R's today. Three R's in relationship to relying on the impact of the Spirit. First, how, how do we rely on the impact of the Spirit? First, we need to resolve to make Jesus Christ the central focus. Resolve to make Jesus Christ the central focus. Paul had purpose from the very beginning of his ministry. It wasn't something new when he got to Corinth. All the way back to when Jesus had called him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, and he was told how much he was going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Very, from the very beginning, Paul made the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel story, the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of God the Father, his central message and the central aspect of his ministry. Everything else he did must serve that purpose. All roads lead to Jesus, the Messiah. And we dare not deviate from Paul's example. We are no less called to make Jesus and the story of the cross the center of our ministry and the center of our discipleship efforts. The best way to ensure that Jesus will be central in your ministry, in my ministry, the best way to ensure to, that, that he will be central is to continually embrace him personally. It's to continually look to him. It's to continually foster the relationship that we have with him as believers. You see, we can't take others very easily to places we haven't been. Can you imagine that if you purchased a gym membership and you arrived at the gym for your first day to, to make use of your membership and you, you're assigned a trainer and that trainer walks towards you holding a donut, clearly out of shape, 
and you ask him, yeah, I, I would like, could you show me how to use this machine? He says, oh, gosh, I don't hardly remember. It's been so long since I've used that machine and really any of the machines in this gym. I don't think that you'd expect that person to help you gain physical fitness. I don't think you could expect that. I think the same with us. If we're not growing personally in our faith and in our relationship, we're not in a very good place to help others, to, to minister to them, to disciple someone else. And so the greatest gift that we can give those who we serve is our own spiritual growth, not, not our sinless perfection, not our ability to have all the answers and be the, the Bible answer person, but a humble, growing faith that is the result of a deep love for the Savior, continually embracing all that Jesus is for us at the cross. And as we grow in our love for Jesus and our appreciation of the gospel, it's a great opportunity for us to just have a diagnostic of where we are as we're serving others. And if we're serving, it feels like, you know, it's just not going that well for me uh, lately. Well, perhaps that's time to take a step back and say, well, am I rehearsing the gospel to myself? Am I reminding myself of God's love for me through Christ? And I re am I reminding myself of my identity that he has given me as his adopted child? When we minister to others out of the overflow of the Spirit's work in our own lives, um, in a way, it's much easier because we don't have to manufacture the results. We don't have to pretend we have it all together. We're living a life of repentance and faith, understanding that we are fellow journeyers. We realize it's the Spirit's job to glorify Jesus. And so we're tapping into the Spirit's sweet spot when we minister out of the overflow of our relationship with Christ. We're making space for Him. And so we begin by resolving to know nothing but Christ. Secondly, we can rely on the impact of the Spirit by recognizing our own weakness in the context of relationships. Recognizing our own weakness in the context of relationships. Paul was much more honest, I would have to say, and transparent about his weakness than most of us are. I know he's much more transparent than I am about his weaknesses. And being weak in Corinth was not the way to win friends and influence people. In fact, just the opposite. Being weak repelled people. They were repulsed by it. They wanted to see winners. I was reading about a, an ad during the 1996 Olympics. I remember the 1996 Olympics because uh, my son was born on the opening day of the 96 Olympics. And this ad ran during the 96 Olympics that said, uh, you don't win silver, you lose gold. Kind of like the t-shirt that says, second is the first loser. That was the opinion. That was the attitude in Corinth. You were number one or you were nothing. Weakness was despised. And yet Paul came there in weakness. He came there not to gain a following for himself, but for King Jesus, the crucified one. And so he embraced his foolishness. He embraced 
the weakness of the cross by recognizing his own weakness. Not just to himself, but to the other believers there in Corinth. He said he was with them, the text says. He was with them in weakness and in fear. He leaned into his weakness. He put it at the top of his resume. Here are my weaknesses. He didn't hide it. That's that's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's totally not the way we think. But Paul said, I may be weak, but I'm fearful. You won't hear that from too many uh, Olympic athletes when they interview them before their event. How do you feel? I feel strong. I feel confident. I feel like I'm going to win. I'm weak. I'm fearful. Friends, that is the cry of the disciple. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's a prayer of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Corinthians chapter 20, or 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Lord, we're powerless. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That, friends, is the prayer of the dependent disciple. And it ought to be our confession to one another. It ought to be our declaration of, of dependence. I'm a mess. I don't have it all together. And it actually makes perfect sense when you think about it. How will the world know that what God is doing among His people is a powerful work of His Spirit and not the result of human achievement? Well, (laughs) Paul said it to them. Hey, guys, not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were well-born. It must be the work of God. Our identity in Christ is in Christ, and God has called us into fellowship with the Son. He is the one who will be faithful. We trust Him to be faithful. And so we recognize our own weakness in the context of relationship. We understand that the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross, And that's where we want to be. That's where the power is. If you want to see a powerful work of the Spirit in your life and in your church, then embrace your weakness in the context of relationship. Finally, thirdly, how can we rely explicitly on the impact of the Spirit? It's by resting our confidence in the content of the message and not the manner of the communication. Resting our confidence in the the content of God's message and not in our ability to communicate it. Paul's ministry was very specific. His ministry was to preach the gospel where it had not been known. Jesus himself had sent Paul out. And unlike the traveling speakers and orators of his day, for whom form and personality was more important than content, Paul's confidence was in what he said and not how he said it. And our approach to discipling one another ought to be the same. Our confidence should should never be in the how, in the technique of our ministry, in, in our programs, in our methodology, in our own personalities. Our confidence must always be in the what, the content of the gospel through the entirety of Scripture. Why Paul said just a few chapters down the road in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 3, I, de- 
I delivered to you of first importance that Jesus Christ was crucified according to the Scriptures, that He died, that He was buried, that He was raised, of first importance. Our confidence is in God's Word. More, more specifically, our confidence is in the God who has promised to be faithful to the ministry of the Word, who has committed Himself to make Himself known by His Spirit through the ministry of the Word. There's that, that Word and Spirit connection, that the, that the Spirit has breathed out the Word of God. And when we minister the Word of God in, in various ways, the Spirit is faithful and His power is demonstrated in life transformation. That's why we're called to a Word-based ministry, not just in terms of the preaching and teaching ministries of the church, but in terms of children's ministry and youth ministry, in terms of home groups and life transformation groups, in terms of one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Even in ministries that aren't all that content-driven, uh, like ministries of just getting together and having fun or, or ministries of compassion, still God's Word needs to inform how we serve and what our goals ought to be. And I would just say to all of us who feel inadequate in, in handling God's Word in all its various forms, I um, give you these words of encouragement from the Reformer, Martin Luther. God once spoke through the mouth of a donkey. If he did that, he certainly can use every person in this room to minister his word in its various forms to those we are discipling and those we are serving. Consider your calling, my brothers and sisters. Not many of us were the wise. Not many of us were the influential. Not many of us were the well-respected of the world. But God chose you. Through weakness and foolishness, God chose you to demonstrate His power. And He is building His church His way. And He will take care of the results. I think Bible commentator Jeffrey Wilson puts it very well when talking about why God has ordained it this way. He says, A faith that depends upon clever reasoning may be demolished by a more acute argument but a faith which is produced by the power of God can never be overthrown. When we're ministering to other people, we want to help, by God's grace, to ground their faith in something that is lasting, to ground them in the truth of God's Word. Which brings us right back to Paul's end goal, Paul's mission, which needs to be our mission as well. And that's building up the faith of one another. Remember what Paul said his end goal was. What he said is, mission was, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, that your faith would be built up, that there would be life transformation happening. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He said, Jesus, we, him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that is God's wisdom, in order that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That should be our goal as well as we minister to one another within the church and outside of it. And in order for our ministry to have that life-transforming effect, we must rely on the impact of the Spirit rather than the ingenuity of man. Resolving to make Jesus known, 
making Jesus known to be our central focus, recognizing our own weakness in the context of relationship, resting our confidence in the content of the message rather than our ability to communicate it. And friends, I know all three of the, the three R's that we've talked about here this morning go against our natural tendency. All require the supernatural work of God. All require God's grace. All require the activity of the Holy Spirit among us. All require active faith. But that's just how God designed it. It's the power through weakness principle that God has called us to disciple one another out of weakness. It's, it's so not our way to work out of our weaknesses, but it's so God's way. Think about it. Think about Abraham and Sarah having a child of promise in their 90s. Weakness. Think about Gideon. God said, you're too strong. You've got way too many men. We don't want anybody to get the idea that this battle is going to be won because of what you did. And so you've got to ditch some of your soldiers. Think about the prophecy of Micah regarding the little town of Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. You're so small and minor among all the clans of Judah, and yet a great king, the ancient of days, will come through you. Think about the words of one of Jesus' own disciples to him. Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Oh, yes. Something good. The righteous one, the great one, the great king came from Nazareth. You know, I wish I could have been in that room listening when the Lord Jesus appeared to the Apostle Paul. We read about in Acts chapter 18. And Paul saying to Jesus, oh, I'm, I'm afraid. And, and I'm not sure I should keep on speaking. I can't speak like the, the people around here. They're so much more talented than I am. And Jesus saying to Paul, go on speaking. Don't be afraid. I am with you. I have already have my hand on people in this city that need to hear the message that you're going to proclaim. Friends, who is God calling you to serve this year? The new school year, new ministry year coming up. It's that time of commitments in the next few weeks for many of us. Whom has God placed in your life to disciple? Perhaps there's that family in your neighborhood and you're saying, I don't, I don't know how we can invite them over. Maybe it's that student that's messed up and you're saying, I don't, I don't know how I could befriend that person. Maybe it's that person in your workplace from the LGBT community and you're saying, I don't know how to even talk to them. Whom has God placed within your sphere of influence where you are every day? Whom has God called you? to reach out with the gospel, to call to be one of his disciples for whom you're saying, I don't know how. I don't know how I can do that. Listen, if you're saying that, if I'm saying that, we're exactly where God wants us to be. 
because we've realized we don't have the resources. We realize that we're weak and we're foolish, and it's going to have to be a demonstration of the Spirit and of power for God to work through us. And so we need to focus on Christ and Him crucified. And so we need to look to the power of God's Word and not our own resources. Friends, that is the power through weakness principle. Listen to how Jesus put it to Paul. We'll read later in 2 Corinthians. He said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And friends, we ought to respond as Paul by saying we will boast all the more gladly in our weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. And for the sake of Christ, then, we are content with weakness and we're content with insult and hardship and persecution and calamity. For when we are weak, then we are strong because it is the power of God working in and through us as we serve one another, as we serve a world that needs to hear about Jesus, all for His glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for trusting in any other resource other than your power working through us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your commitment to make Christ known. That's your job. That's awesome. We seek to make him known. We are coming right alongside you and and making space for you to work. Lord, as we think about the people in our lives, as we think about the, the ministries and the ways we serve here in this church, may we seek to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And may we gladly serve and disciple and minister out of our weakness, looking for you, Lord, to be the one who is our resource so that what we see is life transformation and a demonstration of the power of your Spirit. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.